Praise the Lord. Welcome to the Book of Acts class. And tonight we hope to move swiftly and look at Acts 11, which is um, in part a review of Acts 10. It's Peter recounting the story of Cornelius and then going into Acts 12, which is, uh, again, the persecution in Jerusalem. So let's, let's start with a prayer. So, Father, thank you tonight that we can be in Bible class. What a privilege to... Uh, Let's just have open Bibles, open hearts tonight and trusting that you would lead us and teach us and uh, answer questions and um, give us understanding and a growing faith tonight and bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we'll tap through these first slides. Uh, So we remember these chapters are a transitional part of the book, Acts 1 to 8 really focuses on what's happening in Jerusalem. 10 to 12 are transitional. We start moving from Jerusalem. We're going to be heading to Antioch as more of the center for sending missions. From the Jews to include the Gentiles. From Peter and the apostles to a new arrival God prepared on the scene, and that's going to be Paul the Apostle. So Acts 1-8, we're starting in Jerusalem. Acts, they're the first eight chapters and the gospel in fulfillment of Acts 1-8 is going to start going out. We've seen the Samaritans reached in Acts chapter 8, um, and we just covered in our last class, Acts 10, the first Gentile convert, Cornelius, the, the centurion. And then after this, from 13 for the rest of the book, it really covers Paul's missionary journey. So we're in Acts um, 11 tonight. And we're going to start seeing a key transition. And this is the inclusion of the Gentiles um, into the church without having to become Jews. See, to this point, um, any Gentiles that would have, they would look to become a Jew or a proselyte would take on the, the elements of Judaism, keeping the law and being circumcised, all the rest of it. But now there's going to be a we're going to see that they, they can just become part of the same church by just believing in Christ. The door is going to be open to the Gentiles. So let's jump into uh, sorry, the next uh, slide here. We'll go through these slides first. Uh, there's our division, the transition in these chapters, preparing us for the first missionary journey. Okay, next slide. And here we can just see... Uh, um, uh, this is this shows us Caesarea. If you can see Jerusalem, and then directly north on the coast of the Med- of the Mediterranean is Caesarea, where of course Cornelius was. This is where Peter get, gets the vision. Cornelius gets the vision, and they get put together for that amazing encounter, which we'll review again tonight. Okay, next slide, and of course Peter's vision. Uh, next slide. Peter invited to Cornelius's house. Next slide. Okay, that's it. So we can jump in here. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So remember, Peter had gone to the house of Cornelius and the word was starting to get back to Jerusalem. You know what? Peter went to Caesarea. Gentiles believed. What did they they say? We, We know at the end of chapter 10, it tells us that Peter tarried there for some days. So not only did Cornelius 
and all those in the house get saved. But Peter stayed some extra days. He would have been teaching them the elements of the gospel and why Christ came and all of these wonderful truths, told more of Christ and the work on the cross. And when the, the Jews heard what had happened, we don't read that they rejoiced. Oh, the Gentiles are also included, but there was contention in their heart. Yeah. Verse 2 and 3, when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And again, this isn't uh, so, and this was the issue. They're stuck on this cultural divide. Peter, you're a Jew. When You went into the house of a Gentile. They couldn't see any further than that. They're not asking the question, wait a minute, you mean the Gentiles heard the gospel and they got saved and God has accepted them? No, they're, they're stuck on this cultural issue. Um, the phrase here, you went into the uncircumcised men and ate with them. It's hard for us to grasp that, but to the Jew and also to the Gentile, this incredible cultural divide. And the word here, contended, is a very strong word. They argued with them, disputed with them. They were, had disdain because of this. So verse 4 through 11, Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, and this word explained, it means he expounded or he gave them a detailed, ordered sequence of events. He lays it out exactly what had happened. Right? They're saying, you went in and he says, okay, Hold the phone, listen, let me tell you exactly what happened. So he starts from the beginning, from when he gets the vision on the rooftop. He leads them through the story. In fact, let's look at that. I was in the city of Joppa praying. I was in a trance. I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. Verse 6, when I observed it intently and considered it, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. And this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. So Peter wants to make it crystal clear that that an angel had visited. He got a word from the Lord. This wasn't his own initiative, but he had a divine mandate to do this. He needed them to really see that this was God, God opening the door, God putting together this meeting. Verse 12, Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing, Moreover, these six brethren, and obviously they were with him at this point, accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So again, he goes straight to the divine mandate. Listen, I know it violates our ceremonial cultural laws and everything, and going to the house of a Gentile, but listen, God was was in this. I had a vision to prepare me for this encounter. He didn't mention, by the way, that Cornelius was a centurion. He just left that little bit out. One of the leaders of our oppressing people. No, he just said a Gentile, the house of a Gentile. Um, and there he says, and we entered the man's house. And this was their contention. It'd be easy for us to read over this, but to them this was the, the main thing. He needed them to see the whole story. Um, he wanted to make it so plain that, that this was God's direct orders. 
So he tells them his part of the story, and then he says, listen, not only that, there's more to the story. Listen to Cornelius' side. This is verse 13. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. And he will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Now, he doesn't tell us what the words were. He doesn't, in his account to the leaders in Jerusalem, he doesn't tell them what the message was. He doesn't say, so this is what I said. They knew what he would say. They knew what the words were. Uh, We see them preached again and again, Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4. It was the gospel. It was explaining Christ as the Messiah and, and Savior uh, and salvation through faith. So he didn't need to explain that here. Verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as it did on us in the beginning. The beginning, of course, being Acts 2. The same thing that happened to them. And this is some years has passed, uh, have passed at this time. Oh, I meant to, maybe we'll photocopy this at the end. But this is a little, I'll give you a copy of this. This is a little timeline of the book of Acts. And um, let's see here, from from Acts chapter 2, which is about 30 AD, uh, this is about 37 AD, so about six, seven years have passed since Acts 2. And he says, listen, the same thing that happened to us in the beginning, when we were gathered, 120 of us in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit came, and we spoke in languages, the same thing happened. Um, actually, he doesn't mention the languages here in chapter 11, but we, we know from chapter 10 that they spoke in languages. And of course, 1 Corinthians one twenty-two tells us it's the Jews that seek a sign. And this was really not for the Gentiles as much as it was for Peter and the six men with him, the Jews who would see the sign of the languages to help them know that this was, a, this was an act of God. So, Verse uh, 16. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's referring back to Acts chapter 1, before the ascension. So in that moment, imagine it, in that moment when Peter's preaching and all of a sudden they, they all start speaking in languages and praising the Lord and there's an incredible anointing there, tells us here, then, at that moment, Peter remembered the Lord saying, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter realizing what was happening to the Gentiles, as just as happened to them, they were being baptized by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen tells us that baptism is that they are added to the ecclesia, the church, or the body of Christ. So just as the Jews were made Members of one another, the Jewish believers in Acts 2, now these Gentile believers also being baptized into that same body. This is the mystery Paul speaks about in in Ephesians 3, that the one new man would be made of Jew and Gentile alike, with no division but unity in the body of Christ. And this would have been, remember in Acts 10, what did he do then? He says, What does stop us from baptizing these men, remember? So straight after that, Peter was the one who said, let's let's baptize them, and they baptized them. Why? Oh, this is such a key point. Because he realized 
he realized this is what the Lord meant. They are baptized by the Holy Spirit. So now let's water baptize them. This is a great verse to teach on water baptism. That water baptism is an outward symbol of the true spiritual baptism that takes place in someone's life. He saw that they were baptized by the Holy Spirit, and now he said, let's baptize them with water, and that's what they did. So back to Peter in Jerusalem here, verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Who was I that I would hinder or prevent God? He's saying, verse 18. And when they heard these things, they became silent. Here's a moment of real contemplation, what Peter's saying, letting it sink in. And then it says, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. Now, this was somehow a blind spot to the Jew. Even though through the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of um, the light to the Gentiles. Even Simeon, when he held the child, this child shall be a light unto the Gentiles. When they were anointed and speaking as prophets, it was often said, that, that the Messiah would be a blessing to the Gentiles. In fact, all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, remember in Genesis 12, part of the covenant to Abraham is your seed will be blessed, your people will be blessed, the land, the seed, etc. But through you, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Right? All of the nations, not just the Jews, that's the whole point. And that's why in John 4, with the woman at the well, Jesus said to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. He didn't say salvation is for the Jews only, but it's of the Jews. It comes through the Jews, as the scriptures did, as the Messiah did, as the message did, but, but it's for all men, a blessing to all nations. So they glorified God in this moment. So that story of Peter reaccounting uh, what happened in chapter 10 is echoed here in chapter 11 because it, it's, it's such a key part of this transitional... It's the, the, the Jewish believers, particularly the leaders in Jerusalem, particularly the apostles, the other apostles, to really get to grips with this transition that the gospel was not only for the Jews but also for the Gentiles. Now, uh, look at verse 19. So it, 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 the, the camera swings over to another, another uh, scene here. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but to the Jew only. Notice that phrase. They're only preaching to the Jews. They still haven't quite got it. We're going to all the world yet. Um, and if you remember... These middle chapters, chapter 8 to 12, at the beginning of chapter 8 is where we read about that dispersion. Remember the persecution under Saul of Tarsus when they start to scatter out the disciples taking the word with them. Philip was one of them, remember? He met the Ethiopian on the road. Um, So the gospel is starting to go out, but really they're only preaching to the Jews. Verse 20, But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. So if you imagine on a map, remember we, 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 you've got Jerusalem, and if you go directly north, past Caesarea on, on the west, go past Caesarea, keep going up to the top, and you finally come to Antioch, 
This is the place that this is happening. This is where Paul is going to end up pastoring with Barnabas. But So it says, um, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyprus that we know today, the island in the Mediterranean, they were more connected with the Greeks, more familiar with the, the, the Greeks and the Greek culture, and they were meeting these Grecians and, and sharing the gospel with them. So the, so we don't know what their names are. It just says, men of Cyprus. Verse 21, what happened? And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now notice, it doesn't say that there were any signs or wonders or any miracles, but just the hand of the Lord was with them. Um, and what was the result? A great number believed and turned to the Lord. We don't read of the apostles laying their hands on them, like that had to happen with the Samaritans in chapter 8, or Peter going to Cornelius in chapter 10. These are just men of Cyprus, just ordinary believers. And many turned to the Lord, and, uh, and um, now the move is made. No apostles involved, no miracles involved, just preaching the gospel, Gentiles getting saved. We have turned a corner. Now the gospel is going out to all the nations. Um, it's going to get under full speed when Paul and Barnabas go out, of course. Verse 22. And then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Okay, so first, remember the leaders in Jerusalem. First they hear about Cornelius. Peter comes back, tells them the whole story. They realize, wow, God has accepted the Gentiles as well. And now they're hearing other stories of these men of Cyprus who are preaching to the Grecians and they're getting saved. So they say, listen, let's send... Boy, who can we send? Who would be a good person to send? We don't want to send Peter. We know where he stands. Who could we send? Someone encouraging, someone who would minister to them. And of course, they choose Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And... Um, uh, he could he could help reconcile what was happening and bring back a, an objective report to them. Verse 23, oh, I love this verse. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. It's a wonderful phrase there. When he came, he saw the grace of God. And how do you see the grace of God? But he saw the fruit of grace in these people's lives. He saw the joy, the liberty, the praise, the, the, the mercy, the love. He saw what we could call body life in action. He saw uh, spirit-filled people praising the Lord, unity and, and faith. He exactly. And that, that's a beautiful characteristic of body life. We, we see the grace of God every time we come together. Um, and Barnabas, it says, uh, what did he do? He encouraged them all with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. And uh, verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Wonderful. Uh, Barnabas was used greatly. He encouraged them, he exhorted them, he invested in them, but he also realized, although he had a great gift and he was a minister and he encouraged them, there was a need for something more, for this incredible work with all of these new believers getting saved. He needed someone else, something else, a pastor teacher. And he, who did he think of? He thinks Saul, 
who has been converted, who is now in Tarsus. So this incredible verse, verse 25, Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And again, if you look on the map, before you take the, the curve around the Mediterranean Sea, you've got Antioch, and then a little bit north and around the curve, you have Tarsus. So the leaders said quite specifically, Barnabas, go as far as Antioch. <laughs> but he went further than Antioch on a mercy mission to find Saul of Tarsus, to bring him back to where this need, where this revival was. Martin Luther says, perhaps this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, Barnabas went to seek Saul. Because would there have been a Saul without Barnabas? And think of the incredible, and of course God had a plan, he would have, he would have put it together. But it's a wonderful thought that um, just like Jonathan went into the wood to find David, remember that in 1 Samuel 23? It says he went into the wood and he found David and he strengthened his hand in God. The Hebrew word means to fortify, to build up, to encourage, because David was kicking the dust and, you know, and Jonathan said, you are the Lord's anointed, come on! And he brings David back on track and that's what Barnabas did brings Saul to this uh, wonderful work of God. So, verse uh, uh, 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This is the time. In God's providence, Saul has been in Tarsus for a while. What has he been doing? We're not sure exactly. Um, You read different things about that. I believe that he wasn't uh, backslidden or passive or hiding away. I believe he, imagine he had the uh, Arabian vision he had the uh, multiple visions and understanding of the grace of God. I believe he was waiting on God, praying, perhaps ministering to people. We, we don't know exactly, but waiting for this moment in God's providential plan. And God was to take... It's so curious that he, doesn't, he decides not to take one of the existing apostles, but he chooses Saul of Tarsus as a chosen vessel, a vessel of mercy himself. He chooses a man who would be so broken by his own sin, realizing every day that he himself is not just a messenger of grace, but a very vessel of grace, a trophy of grace, so unworthy to be saved, let alone to be used by God, let alone to be an apostle. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says about his apostleship, he says, I am not worthy I'm not worthy, but I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but I am an apostle, and I know it's by grace. And his grace that was bestowed upon me was not in vain, he says, but but brought forth much fruit. So it's wonderful to to think of that. God had very beautifully prepared Paul, chosen this incredible plan to bring this man who wasn't, in fact, Paul calls himself an apostle born out of due time, uh, for this particular time, for this particular moment. And uh, verse 26, so he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples, and of course that's Mathetes, that's learners, followers of Christ, were first called Christians in Antioch. And uh, afterwards, we'll just clarify with the map. But again, Antioch, basically straight north of uh, uh, Jerusalem. There's, there's another Antioch, uh, Antioch of Pisidia, but this is, this is a different one, north of Jerusalem. 
So the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And Christians really was a term that was often used for believers in Christ. It really means little Christ or Christ men. And um, and so so where are we now? Barnabas and Saul, or we can start calling him Paul the Apostle, um, are now in Antioch. This is where the great missionary movement is going to is going to begin. We're going to see it in, in at the beginning of chapter thirteen. So let's just read uh, twenty seven here. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and then one of them named Agabus stood up showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So there was a famine, this is dated about 46 AD, and the church in Antioch said, oh, we want to help our brothers in Jerusalem. Remember, there was always poverty in the church of Jerusalem. They always had that need, right from the inception of chapter 2 and 3, where thousands were there at Pentecost. Probably many of them stayed. Remember, 3,000 got saved, and then 5,000. It, it was a big, growing church with a lot of need. So, and plus, there was a famine. So they said, let's send relief. Let's take offerings and send support. Who will take it? Barnabas and uh, Saul. And notice these last two words here. By the hands of Barnabas and Saul. At this moment, at this time, uh, Barnabas is still kind of recognized as the leader here. It's going to change as the, as the commentary goes on. It's going to start saying Paul and Barnabas. But here it says Barnabas and Saul. As they're waiting for a key moment here. Let's jump straight into chapter 12 here. And... Um, and again, if you imagine the camera swinging and focusing on certain things, the camera now swings to Jerusalem because this is where Barnabas and Paul have just gone, taking the offering back to the church. And we're going to see, again, the persecution is, is red hot right here in, in Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, however you want to say it, are going to be here in Jerusalem at this time. We're going to see James is martyred. There have been many other martyrs. Stephen was martyred, but this is the first apostle. Uh, Stephen was the first deacon. There are others who have been killed in the persecution, of course. Many others imprisoned and beaten and killed. But here is the first apostle showing the, the, uh, the, the great intensity of the, the persecution. Um, we'll also see, though, that Peter, though he's taken, will be delivered in this chapter. And that's a wonderful... Uh, Curious question it brings to our mind. Well, why is it that the Lord allowed James to be killed and yet spared Peter? It's interesting, isn't it? The issues of death are with the Lord. It was time for James. He'd had his ministry. He had his time. He would glorify God in that way. But Peter was yet to to continue in the ministry. God is now allowing persecution. And, of course, this is God's timing uh, for, for, for Saul. So Saul of Tarsus, if we just think back, we remember converted. Well, he was there at the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7. He was heading the persecution in chapter 8. He was converted gloriously in chapter 9. Then he's left in Tarsus until Barnabas goes and seeks him again. And now the timing is right. Barnabas brings him to Antioch. They're teaching for a year. Imagine that year of intense Bible teaching and the growth of the church. 
And then they go to Jerusalem with the support. Um, and this is all before God is going to be, God is going to say these wonderful words, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. And they're going to go out on their first missionary journey. This will be about 10 years after Saul's conversion. Um, often we don't see that timeline. We read chapter and chapter, we think it's very fast, but years pass between. So you've got 10 years he was converted before that. So let's jump in with verse 1. It's quite a short chapter. We should be okay. Verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Now one thing we need to do as Bible students is separate the Herods. There's quite a few in the New Testament. This is the uh, grandson of Herod the Great, who was at the birth of Christ, who had the, the children killed, etc. Um, uh, and Herod was allowed here to touch the church. We think back to the book of Job, where Satan went to God and said, can I touch your servant Job? And he was allowed to touch him, not take his life, but he was allowed to touch him. And the same thing here asking if he could touch the church. And the Lord allowed this persecution and even used it to, for, for the good of the gospel, and etc. Um, verse 2, And he killed James, the brother of John. Again, of course, this was allowed by the Lord. And he killed him with the sword, just as John the Baptist, a beheading, which was shameful to the Jews, by the way. Uh, this was the brother of John. When we read the Gospels, we often read these particular three together, Peter, James, and John. Uh, they were at certain events that other disciples were not at. They saw Jairus' daughter healed. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Galatians 2.9, they are called the pillars of the church, the church in Jerusalem. They were three key leaders in Jerusalem. And uh, Peter, of course, is, is going to be arrested. Um, John, we know, is one of the last living apostles, uh, but here James, the brother of John, these are the sons of thunder, um, uh, is, mar is martyred here. And uh, verse 3, and because he saw, Herod saw, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now Herod did this to gain favor with the Jews. He was not a Jew he was an Edomite himself. He descended from Esau. There was great historical conflict between the two. So he was, he was governing, a king over the Jews, but himself not a true Jew and hated by the Jews. And anything he could do to gain favor with the Jews, he would do it. And when he saw they loved that he, he would persecute Christians, he would kill James, he thought, oh, okay, I can, I, I'll take Peter as well. And of course, his intent was to martyr him as well, but God had another plan. It says, during the days of the unleavened bread. Verse 4, so when he arrested him, he put, it in, put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Uh, we know that Peter has been in prison a few times before, in fact, three times before. And at one of those times, he was also delivered by an angel in chapter 5, remember? Um, and it says that uh, four times four soldiers, four uh, squads of soldiers, so 16 soldiers, uh, perhaps on a rotation of some sort, given over the guard of, of this particular prison. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but... Beautiful, beautiful clause here. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. 
So we have this scene at the prison. Peter is seized. There's John is, uh, sorry, James has been martyred. The people are fearful. Peter's seized, taken in prison. And what happens? The saints gather together and they pray continually, fervently. What are they praying for? It tells us praying for him, praying for Peter. Uh, we can only imagine they'd be praying for his safety, his deliverance, that God would, would you know, save him, deliver him. Impossible situation, but prayer. <clears throat> and what were they praying for? For, for perhaps what, the way God answers it in the following verses. Verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping. And that's an interesting note, isn't it, that he was sleeping? Isn't it? He wasn't up all night, fearful, trembling. He was, he was sleeping. We, perhaps he had a faith rest. Perhaps he remembered the words of the Lord that said, when you are older, another will gird you. Perhaps he had trust in that God, God wasn't finished with him yet. God had a, a plan for his life and was going to use him further. But either way, he was sleeping. And uh, the angel even had to slap him on the side to wake him up. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. Verse 9. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. That's an interesting word. It's automos in the Greek. Automatically. The door just opened like, a, like an automatic door. Just swung open. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. What a miracle. Only a miracle could have got... Peter out of this situation and that's what happens here verse 11 and when Peter had come to himself what a wonderful phrase we read this phrase of the prodigal son also all of a sudden he came to himself wait a minute what am am I he begins to assess the situation and that's what Peter did it says he came to himself and said wait a minute the angel's gone he's standing in the street and he begins to think it says verse 12 when he had considered this We don't know how long he considered it for. Maybe he sat down on a wall for a few minutes. But but he considered it. What did he begin to say? Wait a minute. I was in prison, and now I'm on the street. I thought it was a dream. Like like those who came back from Babylon, remember? We were as those who dreamed. We couldn't believe it was real. And Peter being delivered from his own captivity, saying, is this a dream? Is this real? Did God do this? He begins to realize this is real. This isn't a trance or a vision. God has physically delivered me from prison. Incredible. And he says to himself, verse 11, Now I know for a certain the Lord has sent his angel, delivered me from the hand of Herod, from all the expectation of the Jewish people. I love to think that we can often be so natural in our thinking as believers, can't we? How often we also need to come to ourselves. We, we said it today, a few of us were meeting, we said we need to consider, Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God. Hit the pause button 
and recount our life, what God has done personally and in the church and what he's doing, um, testimonies you hear about people getting saved or prayers being answered. This is considering the work of God. It's an amazing uh, privilege to be a part of that, isn't it? I love verse 12 here. Uh, it says, And so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, John Mark. Uh, by the way, this John Mark is Mark, who is going to write the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This Mark, who's just casually named here, is going to be John Mark, who goes on the missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul. He's going to become a, a key figure in the, in the, in the, in the Gospels. At the, end of, um, at the end of Paul's life, when he's in prison, he says, John Mark is profitable for the ministry. This young man is going to be wonderfully raised up here. And notice, the, 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 um, we could easily read over this verse. I remember noticing this one many years ago. But here there's an unsung hero of the church in this verse, and it is Mary, the house of Mary. Because remember, this is a time of the most intense persecution. Uh, These are like our brothers and sisters in parts of the world where your life is in jeopardy if you would gather to have a Bible study or prayer. This is what was happening in Jerusalem. And yet, in the house of Mary, it says, where would they go? They, They went, where did Peter go? Where would he know that the brethren would be meeting for prayer? The house of Mary. In a time of pure persecution, what a wonderful faith warrior. What a wonderful servant in the body of Christ Mary must have been. Hosting the body, leading, uh, having prayer meetings together there. Wonderful, wonderful verse. And it says that many were gathered together praying. Wonderful. Um, uh, Verse 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate... A girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Um, She probably ran back through the room, back to where the prayer was happening, and obviously interrupted the prayer. They're probably, oh, Lord, we pray, please, Peter, if you could deliver him, please, Lord. Have mercy. She runs in. Peter's at the door. And then what, do they, what is their answer? Not incredible faith response. Oh, hallelujah, God, you've answered our prayer. But they say, you, you must, you're losing your mind. Peter's in prison. That's why we're having the prayer meeting. Verse 15, they said to her, you are beside yourself. And yet she kept insisting that it was so. And they said, it is his angel. It's a curious verse that. We don't know why they would come to that conclusion exactly. There's the the belief from that that perhaps there's an angel dedicated to each person, guardian angels. Um, And that's the conclusion they had. It's not Peter, but it's his angel. And she kept saying, no, it's him. She continually, she's getting into, she's not backing down. I'm telling you, he's at the door. Verse 16, and Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and they were astonished. Verse 16. Um, isn't that wonderful? Think of it as a good application for that. They're, you know, they're, they're praying for Peter to be delivered and the answer to prayer is knocking at the door, 
of the prayer meeting. And it's only when they open the door and they see it, they're astonished. And one day, we could say the door will be opened and all of the skepticism will be silenced. All through the church age, we could say Jesus knocking at the door, the, the, the gospel knocking at the door of this world, the, the revelation of God so apparent, fulfilling the prophecies, doing such an incredible work on this earth. And all of the claims of evolution and all of the isms and the philosophies of men. But one day the door will be opened and there will be astonishment. Every knee will bow. Every, every tongue will confess he is Lord. But they were astonished here. And verse 17, motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. There was obviously quite a stir. And he had to quieten them down. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go and tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now, that must have been a wonderful night of, of when Peter comes in and he tells them to be quiet and he begins to tell them the story. As you know, I was seized. I was dragged into prison in the middle of the night. And he recounts this story um, of, of what God had done. What a, amazing to just consider the work of God like that. And, and how comforting this would have been to the church. Think of it. Uh, uh, James has just been martyred. They thought they would never see Peter again. Oh my gosh, we, this is the end of the church. We're all going to be stamped out, etc. And then he comes back and says, you know what? The Jews had an expectation. Herod was rejoicing in, in my demise, but God delivered me. How comforting that would have been for the, for the church. And then he says, go and tell these things to James and to the brethren. Why? Because you can be sure James is thinking uh, uh, this is, the, this is uh, the Lord's brother, James the Lord's brother, is just thinking, well, who, they're going to be going after all the apostles, all the leaders. But here, James the Lord's brother, perhaps the only apostle left, perhaps the other apostles have already left Jerusalem at this time. That's why it only says James and the brethren, but we don't know. But uh, this marks the end of this transitional period. And let's read through these last verses to close. Verse 18. And then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. Why do you think that is? Because these soldiers, on their own very life, had been charged to keep this man. And they know if the prisoner escapes, it can cost their own life. So there's no small stir among the soldiers. And when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. Quite severe. And he went down to Judea and to Caesarea, and he stayed there. And of course, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful uh, remains of, of uh, in Caesarea, there's beautiful remains of the amphitheater and things, and a beautiful, magnificent palace he had in Caesarea. Um, verse 20, and this just gives us a little uh, uh, cl closing clause here. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So it just gives us a little historical background for this purpose. Verse 21, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel. And this is in Caesarea. Uh, and if we go to the Israel trip uh, this year or next year, we'll go to Caesarea. And we can think about not only Cornelius' conversion, but also Herod's uh, end here. 
arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave oration to the people. Josephus, who is a famous uh, Jewish historian, says that he was, he, w- he was wearing silver and shone brightly in the sunlight, sat on the throne and spoke to the people from his throne. And the people kept shouting, verse 22, the voice of a God and not of a man. And the people continued to shout, the voice of a God, not a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Again, Josephus says this was five days later. He was struck down and five days later he died of some horrific internal disease. Um, But look at verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And then we go back to our main characters in the story, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. So that whole persecution passage of chapter 12, we could, we could say is in parentheses, although it's a key part of what's happening. But following the line of our main characters, we could connect um, uh, uh, the end of... Uh, chapter 11, 11.30, where Saul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem, remember, with the offering, and we could connect it right to this verse. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and also took with them, note, John, whose surname was Mark. And when we meet next time, we're going to open with Acts 13. We're getting into the exciting missionary journeys of, of Paul and Barnabas. And on that first journey, who do they take with them? Because Barnabas, uh, he was a cousin of Barnabas or a nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas wanted to take with him John Mark, and that's what they do. So this young man's got some adventures ahead of him. Okay, so Father, thank you for this time tonight in the book of Acts. And we thank you for this incredible history of the early church and all that you were doing Um, even though the hand of the enemy was against them, the amazing miracles and deliverance and you raising up uh, uh, the Apostle Paul and bringing the inspiration of the scriptures that we are able to treasure uh, in our lives today. And we thank you for uh, being able to study these things together tonight. Bless us, lead us in our learning. In Jesus' name, amen.